So you're in good company because Russell's been on several times along with a number of folks, you know, because my world has been both K-12 and higher ed and then just community stuff. So I'm excited to have you on here. Hello, I'm Annette, and thank you for listening to my podcast. Today, I'm excited to visit with Pascal Charlot from the Aspen College Excellence Program. And we've recently met in Washington, D.C., and we'll talk about that. So, Pascal, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Annette, for the invitation. It's just a real pleasure to not only be with you on this podcast, but to be with an Aspen Prize winner. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Tell the audience about you, please, your background and what you do now. Sure. I am the managing director of the College Excellence Program, which means that I serve in a strategic role in terms of our priorities in order to impact the field so that we can increase the number of students who are achieving their goals and reaching higher levels of success. In addition, I'm involved in our leadership development programs, but prior to joining Aspen, I was a campus president at Miami-Dade College, where I also served as the Dean of the Honors College, which is regarded for being one of the best programs in the country for developing a transfer pipeline from the two-year institutions to the four years. But the truth of the matter is I am a lawyer by training. And in oh. fact, I was a criminal lawyer many, many moons ago. So there's lots for us to talk about in this conversation. <laughs> well, that's really interesting. You can see the the results of not making good decisions in, in choosing your life path. For that, You have seen that for sure. So, um, well, thank you. So, again, we met uh, in Washington, D.C. because... Uh, we found out the day we met, or at least the day after we met, uh, that we were one of the co-winners of the Aspen Prize for Excellence. So talk about the process, I guess, first on how you how you get to the finalist, what it takes to be in the top 150 and then the top 10 and such, please. Sure, sure. So let me start off by just explaining what the prize is uh, in the event that you have some listeners who are not familiar, which I would be completely surprised because we assume everybody knows about the prize. Um, But in effect, the Aspen Prize is awarded to institutions who have been identified as a result of their outcomes to be improving student success at scale through systemic change. And the process is fairly rigorous. And so we want to move away from anecdotal evidence to looking at data and proven practices in order to ensure that the outcomes we are seeing are have a causal connection as opposed, of, uh, as opposed to a happenstance connection. And the intention is to elevate those practices, not only to recognize and reward the institutions that have develop them and executed them with excellence, but to share those practices with the field. Because our intention is to identify best practices that can be disseminated through curriculum, through leadership development, through open resource uh, tools, so that all institutions can elevate in order to succeed. And so you alluded to one aspect of the process, which starts with institutions being invited to apply based on data that we collect. And those institutions then submit an application and we have a team 
that gets involved in evaluating those outcomes. And that team is really consists of a series of a team of teams that include experts. It includes people from the field, people who understand community colleges. And what we're trying to do is to understand whether there are practices that are connected to those outcomes and whether or not there's some intentionality around that that can be teased out in order to share with the field. So when we think about the field of 150 that gets honed down to 25 and that gets further refined to 10, what differentiates each level, it's data, it's inquiry, because we actually have conversations with leaders and their teams in order to understand more about the, the decisions made to lead to those changes and how the systems were redesigned in order to achieve those outcomes. And once we have that information and we feel very strongly based on the data that these are top tier institutions, we then deploy a team in order to visit the top 10. And from those teams, that final bit of information is collected then we have a separate track, which includes our independent jury that has not been involved at all in any of the investigative processes, but they receive the data and the summary of the analysis, and that's where the final selection is made. So to answer your question, the main difference between the 150 and the 10 is the 10 have been filtered through a process that's been focused on data, conversations, and experts helping to evaluate the connection between the two in order to elevate those institutions really worthy of recognition. Well, as you know, this was our second time to be in the top 10. And the last time uh, the, the event was held virtually because it was still in the COVID years in 21. Um, and so this time there was an event that we attended, uh, a nice luncheon, and a celebration of just of all the top 10 winners who are very impressive. And so we, you know, it's nice for us to learn from others so we can, you know, share ideas both ways and, and really come back with some good ideas and, you know, maybe implement those and help, help our students even more. So that's exciting. You know, you, you raise a really important piece around the network itself. Because as an institution, you're typically so internally focused, you may be pulling exemplars from the field to advance your strategies. But what you've just described is what stimulates imagination, right? It helps you think about what you may have assumed was not possible, but actually could be, given the direction that some of these field leaders are taking and achieving results. And you've just named the other reason why the prize plays such an important role in the field, because it gives people hope. And in this moment, post-COVID, hope is in short supply. Um, when we think about diminishing resources, the great resignation, and all the ways our institutions are being challenged. So you're absolutely right that peer-to-peer -peer connection helps to reinforce the reality that all of us need to work together to improve those outcomes. Even as much progress as we've made, there's still so much work to do, both locally and nationally and globally, I'm sure. So you, you did go on some of the site visits. Uh, what are some of the most surprising things you, you saw or learned? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. You know, higher education institutions have really evolved in silos. Student affairs has a purpose. Academic affairs has a purpose. 
And it's not often that institutions are led by leaders who are committed to thinking about the institution as a whole and understanding how to introduce interventions that will have implications on different parts of the whole, depending on the intervention and where it's introduced. And so what was very refreshing was to number one, see the difference um, strong leadership can make in providing direction with a limited set of key priorities that focus people's efforts so the institution is moving together and working across silos in order to achieve the same goals. It's also been very powerful when the president has longevity, like in the case of Russell, he's been there for many years, or even in the case of Imperial Valley, the other institution that was recognized, the incoming president was able to continue the work of the outgoing president. So it's a reflection of how the board was thinking intentionally about continuing the transformational work. So also seeing evidence of good board governance that puts the institution first was also very powerful and very refreshing. Um, when you mentioned silos, that made me think of our community work that Amarillo College has certainly been involved in uh, for quite some time is is the institutions or the, you know, the tracks are siloed, you know, K-12, community college, four years, social services and such. And, and part of the effort that we've done here is to pull those together. We just had our P-16 council meeting yesterday that brings all those folks together in business and community and workforce. Um, so I think it's important for listeners to understand that it does take a village, and it really is important to work cross-sector, not just within the college, but outside in the community as well, or we've found that to be the case. I, I think that's right, and what's really special of the work that, that you've done at Amarillo, Russell, the team, including the board, is that you've centered the student inside of the conversation, so the common purpose exceeds the institutional interests, but really focuses on the student and how does the institutional interest not only aligns with the student, but also across the ecosystem. And that is something that's fairly unique. I mean, typically the institutional interests are so strong that um, it's very hard to transcend those to create sort of a collective impact model in the ways that you're describing. But I agree with you 100%. When we're talking about transformational change at the community level, there is no institution that can do it independently. It does take common purpose and also common purpose with trust that there is real faith and commitment to achieve the goals for the benefit of the community um, and an infrastructure that supports and undergirds the work because it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long-term commitment of time, talent, and treasure, right, to, to move that agenda forward. So I agree with you 100%. So through your studies, does the college excellence program focus on only community college or do you do work in the four-year it's a great question. And so our program started with a focus on community colleges that is centered on the prize. And so we take our learnings from the prize and we develop curriculum content, leadership, uh, open source tools, et cetera. But in addition, we recognize that students enter a community college in order to transfer or to improve 
their workforce opportunities immediately after completing a credential at the community college or just gaining whatever they need. Given that reality, we've invested in building a, a portfolio of work that supports bachelor's attainment through transfer. And what that means is that um, we have a thread of work related to selective colleges, which is called our American Talent Initiative, who've made a commitment to look at low and moderate income students and how do we increase their access to selective colleges through merit-based approaches, not preferential treatment, right? Um, and then the second thread of work is looking at our public institutions. And through our transfer intensive, we have a project where we pair select uh, public institutions with community colleges that are in their community. And together, they work on their strategy in order to improve the pathway to transfer from the two-year to the four-year. Because what we know is when leadership leaders prioritize, when I say leaders, the presidents of the four-year and the two-year, when they prioritize transfer and make a clear investment in the advising so that there's a seamless correlation and the academic pathways so that the content of the courses actually prepare our students to be successful when they transfer with the right number of credits, we know that sets our students up for success in order to attain their bachelor's degrees. It's for somebody like me, it's great to know that organizations like you exist and are working to, you know, pull the just the best practices out of, you know, the local or regional efforts and, and spread them because we can all help each other so much. Um, we certainly live in a, you know, in a, in a system uh, that is dictated by, by government, uh, both at the state and federal level. What, would, what are some of the things you would like uh, our state or federal leaders to know about what you've learned and about community colleges? It's a, it's a great question. And, and, and um, so I have a couple of thoughts. So let me ramble for a moment. Please, please. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to honor and respect the pathways that two-year institutions provide I think very often, especially in public conversations, when higher education is described, the assumptions are really about four-year institutions and not necessarily two-year institutions. So for example, all the critique around affordability doesn't apply as much in the two-year space. Um, and there are so many sort of cultural conversations that are undermining the value of a higher education credential that seem to be more targeted to the four-year space, but because there's no differentiation, I think the two-year space gets caught in that conversation. And, and sometimes the populations that are mo the most vulnerable buy into the larger conversation, not understanding that the pathway in the two-year is slightly different. And so I, I think it's important for lawmakers to be mindful and sensitive about the need to uncollapse the two pathways and thinking about the messages for each and the target audiences for each, and what are the implications of those messages. Having said that, there is also a relationship between the two pathways. And there are many states that have figured out how to create, whether it's a numbering system that's consistent between the two and four year, or are formalizing articulation agreements so that transfer is more seamless. But there's an opportunity for lawmakers to consider how to incentivize institutions 
to prioritize transfer. Because in the absence of that, what you find are students are having to navigate multiple institutions sometime in the same state and trying to figure out how, for, how might their credits help them be prepared for their work when they arrive at the transfer institution. Certainly the responsibility is on the two-year institution to help broker those conversations and to provide the systems. But the absence of lawmakers setting the conditions shifts the burden to the two years. And also in many cases, the students who often are changing their minds, as you know, um, multiple times and not always connecting back to the two-year institution when those decisions are made, um, but have challenges navigating those different systems. So as a result, what happens, you may have students graduating with too many credits that don't necessarily transfer. So people have wasted time and they've wasted money because once they arrive at their destination, they may have to take courses um, to satisfy prerequisites that would have been handled had a better system been in place. And so my, my wish list would be for more lawmakers to consider how to make the transfer process between the two-year and four-year simpler, frankly, for all institutions to navigate, but more importantly, to prioritize efficiency for the students so that they can achieve their goals in a more transparent and a simplified way. And at least in Texas, our funding systems are different completely from the four years versus the community colleges. And you're, I'm sure, aware that we've had a community college uh, special commission for the past year trying to focus on on uh, getting some different kind of different fundings, more outcomes-based uh, focus in Texas. And we're, we're not finished yet because we still got a few weeks left in session, but we're hoping that all gets through. So, And, and there... There are good reasons for you know these performance-based funding models that have sprouted in different forms throughout the country. I, I I think to your earlier question, it shouldn't be lost on lawmakers that these kinds of policy decisions also shape how data is used, um, the compliance mindset that can, in many ways, um, trump the the kind of design, innovative design that we're seeing at Amarillo, and so. You know, my hope would be there's a balance between sort of these sort of compliance type expectations and how we can develop a mindset that's not purely metrics driven, but sort of combines the qualitative and the quantitative so we don't lose sight of our commitment to serving students first. Without me putting my assumptions or opinions in here, uh, would you talk about the importance of disaggregating our data, our student data? It's an important question. You know, oftentimes when we think about access metrics, student success metrics, even completion metrics, we don't think about the different program pathways. We don't think about part-time students versus full-time students and the considerations that those part-time students might endure. Um, through their different pathways. Um, we often don't even think about, and this is what you've done very well at Amarillo, the whole student and some of the other considerations those students might face. And so as a result of that, there can be a false equivalency in thinking about how students perform. And without that disaggregation, it's very difficult to customize solutions or to identify where there might be systemic barriers that are um, unintentionally 
creating more challenges for some students as opposed to other students. So the idea of disaggregation is to give you a realistic picture about how teaching and learning is landing for different populations of students, to look at your student supports and how they're affecting students in different ways, um, and also to think about if a student is navigating multiple systems and having roadblocks in multiple systems, is there a larger challenge when you zoom out regarding the, the design of the institution? So the beauty of disaggregation is that it allows those who are running the institutions or running the systems to really understand how they are being affected. Um, and I think very often institutions are very internally focused. And if you've had a team that's been doing the work for a very long time, there are lots of blind spots because many systems have not been updated in many, many years. So what the disaggregation will also allow you to do is to be very current and to really understand who is the student you're currently serving? Not the student you designed for 10 years ago, but if you were to look at the outcomes of your student population disaggregated, are there some ways you can improve those outcomes for students by reimagining your systems? You know, a few years ago, uh, Tia McNair and a few other co-authors really talked about what does it mean to be a student-ready institution? Because it's very easy, and I think for many years, in different places in higher education, the blame has been on the student. And when you choose to be a student-ready institution, you actually take that off the table and you become 100% responsible to determine what can we do to improve our systems to ensure that students are succeeding. And so what disaggregation of data will do is give you information that isn't anecdotal, it's not based on any preferences or biases. It's really an understanding of what is reality in order to make better decisions or to affirm that the decisions you're making are actually the right ones. What do you see as some of the challenges ahead for community colleges? It's a great question. You know, there's a lot of turnover in the seat of the president for different reasons, whether it's a number of seasoned presidents retiring or new presidents landing in their first position for a few years before transferring out to another institution. And the lack of consistency and leadership really makes it challenging to pursue transformational change. You know, systemic change usually takes some time. And, and the, the fact that your leadership transitions are becoming more frequent shifts the burden in some ways to the boards to hold that long-term vision um, in a way that can be used to help recruit the next president and to make that selection. If it's someone who has the knowledge, skills, and abilities to execute the vision you have for the community. Um, but even if you're thinking of, of internal candidates who understand the work and will be able to continue the work. But when we're thinking about improving student success at scale, it does require the long-term being, vision being held somewhere. And one of the challenges that we're seeing is that not all institutions are thinking about the long game. They may be reacting to the short-term enrollment crisis or the departure of a president, but losing sight of the long-term. So that's one concern. The second concern, and it ties to your previous question about disaggregating data, is that um, are we using data effectively in order to determine that long-term vision. So 
when we think about data use, that includes community demographics, regional economic talent development needs, um, industry predicted changes in the community or opportunities for new industry engagement. That's a long game. And that data, when it's used strategically, can help you position your institution for what's to come in the next three to five years, which might take hiring faculty, program realignment, strategic finance reallocation, et cetera. And so the idea of using data and bringing the outside in and not just purely reacting to the internal metrics, we tend to think fall to fall retention, fall to spring retention, 150% completion. To your point about performance-based funding, that's a very internally driven metric. Um, and, and, and the concern is not being able to balance the internal and the external. So there's a commitment to pull the institution forward so that you're not just reacting to the present, but setting the institution up for success in the future. That's wonderful. So what do you see as the next big wave of innovation for community colleges? Um, so the question you're asking is one that keeps us all up at night in the work that we do at, at, at Aspen. And you know, what we've been talking a lot about is that college reform started with access, then it moved to access and completion. And now we're finding more and more conversations focused on post-graduation outcomes. So access completion and what's happening afterwards. And what we believe is that starting with post-graduation success helps you to redesign a very different system. And if we go one layer deeper than that and where we think the innovation can come is thinking about equitable access to programs of value. So when we think about living wages, social mobility, and even satisfaction after people graduate, one of the questions that comes up is whether or not they actually had the opportunity to pursue programs of value. There are times those programs are not stuck, structured for scale or the pathways are not clear enough for people to understand the career options. You know, as a culture, we focus on STEM as sort of the program of value, but there are so many in, in that trajectory that we can do a better job to identify. And imagine what it would mean for colleges to really understand the layout of those programs, the low value versus high value, disaggregating the data to see who are in those pathways, and what are the barriers for students to access those pathways. And many of the low value programs are important for social impact and for our society, right? We need early childhood um, care providers who don't make a significant amount of money, but they matter. And if as a sector, we were able to elevate the importance of that role, you know, could we work together? You talked about lawmakers to increase wages in that sector. Could we find ways to minimize the debt burden of that sector? But the reality is, especially for community colleges, if, you know, time is a valuable commodity. And if people have invested time and the conditions of their lives aren't better, then it diminishes the value of them coming to higher education, which then gets translated to other people not to come get a degree because your life is not gonna change. And so the, the innovation is really around understanding credentials of value and what do we need to do as a sector to expand access to those. And for those that are necessary, but are low value, how can we support the elevation so that value is improved? 
Well, I think you've really summed up so much uh, really good information about community colleges, the challenges that both our students and our colleges and communities face uh, in dealing with moving students through pathways to uh, living wage jobs. And uh, as you know, we've been working on it for a while and we've still got a long way to go, but uh, we're going we're gonna to keep working on it. And I know all the organizations and all the colleges you work with are going to continue to do that. So thank you for that work. Um, anything else our listeners need to know about the Aspen Award or the Aspen Prize? Um, so I'm going to extend your question to the Aspen Prize and the sector that we all care very deeply about. Uh, but the first I want to say that um, very often what the what people experience is the award being disseminated and not the 20 months of work that predates the award. Or 20, or 20 years, years, I think yeah. that's right. <laughs> and so I, I just want to emphasize that it is a really rigorous process and something the community in Amarillo should be extremely proud of. You know, that across the country in a very competitive process that included a degree of rigor where we're pulling data sources from federal sources, regional sources, uh, the National Clearinghouse data. We do a very rich data dump in order to really understand what is going on inside the institution and how leadership and the implementation of the strategies is really causing change in the lives of the students and the community. So I wanna elevate that it is a tremendous honor to be proud of to be at the top of, of the, the community college landscape because of the work that you've done. And, and I wanna applaud that, that effort. And I'm, I'm mentioning it in this question because this is the kind of work that, that is valued by the field. That's why people watch the award. That's why people continue to apply. Just like Amarillo did, even if you don't win, you keep coming back and you're committed to continuous improvement, not for the prize, but for student success and to improve the community. And so what we provide is a mechanism to support increasing levels of student success. The money and the accolades, that's, that's the icing on the cake, but the cake is that more students will succeed because of the efforts that, that you're pursuing and the field recognizes and values why, why that matters. Um, so my hope would be that as you celebrate this moment, not just for now, but for the next two years while you hold the crown, um, that, that you recognize the very important role that you play as an institution and as a board in setting the right example for the cake, for the continuous improvement <laughs> that is really transforming people's lives. And now more than ever, this sector is rising in importance as we recognize the need to build the talent development, to fill gaps in our workforce, and also recognizing as bachelor entertainment becomes more important for the jobs of the future, how critical it is that you are putting the right systems in place that will endure over time to ensure students are prepared. So I just want to also recognize the board for your clairvoyance in playing the long game and not just responding to what is very easy to react to in terms of getting butts in seats, 
but really changing people's lives. And ultimately we're committed to the same things. That's really what it's about. Well, thank you for the congratulations. And um, I'm sorry you weren't here for our, uh, our community-wide and college-wide uh, celebration on Friday. It was, it was fun. And, and, and it was, they, they had all the presidents since 2015 talk for, uh, you know, what had happened, nice. kind of to build the history. And, uh, of course, then I got to say, yeah, we would. But <laughs> so I have to tell you, I just I have to tell fun. you, Annette, um, I was part of the team that visited Amarillo. And between the barbecue ribs and the great music and weather, like, <laughs> I could see how that would have been <laughs> a really good time. Uh, but I, I do want to make just one more observation, which was very powerful and unique during that site visit. You know, because of the approach you all have taken to setting the student personas in place and providing consistent conversations about that, it's really, really um, heartwarming is the word that comes to mind to see how faculty owned that persona and connected that to the coursework, the level of agency in the staff and the administrators and the commitment that was consistent in all of our conversations in every corner of the institution. And so I just wanna also recognize the, the ways that you all navigated a culture shift that really prioritize what was most important based on your understanding of the data and your understanding of what worked and taking that to scale. That was something that was actually pretty unique and also very powerful. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, I've been on the board eight years, eight years. I guess I'm going into my ninth year on the AC board uh, starting next week. So <laughs> it's it's been a journey, but we've got a, a great team and uh, we love our students to success. So that's that's our goal. Pascal, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Uh, it's a pleasure to get to know you a little better. And I uh, really appreciate connecting and uh, appreciate the work that y'all do. It's, it's a real pleasure, but there there's nothing we can do without all of you. And so it's, it's a partnership and dare I say a marriage at this point. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going back. I We're love not breaking it. I up. love it. Take good care. I look forward to seeing you soon. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to Annette on education.